Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast Summer Series. This is the... Winter Warmer <laughs> Series. Yes. <laughs> last time I said that you made fun of me, so... <laughs> uh, but this is the last the last of the Summer Series. Next week we'll be back. We're back, back on deck. Back on deck. After our break in Japan. Yeah, really, really looking forward to, to coming back, I'm assuming. <laughs> but... For the meantime, we've got one more conversation. This, this one with James Warman. James, yeah. So this one really got me thinking about... I like, I really like this. This me is too. in my wheelhouse. This, yeah, this, this is a great conversation. So James is the author of a book called Stuffocation, but he, and he also coined the phrase or at least really popularized the term experientialism, you know, so not thinking about stuff in terms of how little we can get away with or... You know, anything anything really rigid. Quant- yeah, quantifiable. Yeah, yeah, but do you use it? Yeah. You know, it, can we use our stuff in order to enrich our lives? And if not, why are we consuming? You know, uh, he's a really insightful, really interesting conversation that I find myself thinking about a lot still. Mm. And this was many months ago. So this is probably the reason that I really wanted to highlight this one because it really got me thinking about it and was kind of one of the – the inspirations behind an episode that we recorded last year called The Problem with Minimalism, which people quite enjoyed. And I think this sort of really fed into that because oh, – go back and listen to that one. I'm not going to rehash the entire <laughs> no, conversation no. now. But but this one I think will get you – really get you thinking as mm. you head into the new year. And I know that particularly for people in the Southern Hemisphere, we're only just starting to look at getting back into the rhythm. Yeah, a lot year. of people have been still on holidays. Kids the are school, still on holidays. Yeah, the school term starts in a couple of days. Yeah. So it's – yeah, people are in that mindset. Yeah, it's, an, it's a really good one to, to kind of kick the, the year proper off. And, uh, yeah, James is just a, a cracker as well. So it's, it's, it's good. Good read, mm. his book. Um, speaking of good reads, <laughs> Destination Simple. Hitting books shelves like now, I think. Very soon. If yeah. not it's like today, maybe the next couple of days, it will be... In Australian and New, New Zealand, Zealand yep. bookstores. Uh, and online. You can head over to slowyourhome.com and I'll have a, a list of places that you can pick it up online as well and, uh, and order it. And I can't give you the exact date for the North yeah. America UK release yet, but as soon as I've got it, I will give it to you and it will be awesome. It will be. Hmm. But in the meantime, go and uh, enjoy James's conversation. Hi, James. Hey, Brooke. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Thank you for getting up early. Oh, that's all right. Thank you for talking to me. <laughs> thanks for having me on the show. No, it's um, it's good. I mean, we were saying before we, we hit record that we tried to connect last year, so it's lovely that uh, we've been able to make it make it the second time around. Um, now, congratulations on the success of your book. I mean, everywhere I'm turning, people are talking about it. Every time I ask. Uh, you know, listeners who they want to hear on the show, your name comes up. It's just, it's making waves. So congratulations. That's nice to hear. Thank you very much. A a good friend of mine who lives in Sydney 
uh, sent me a picture of the book in, I think it was some kind of airport uh, bookshop, and it was in the windows, like, you know, the one being Herald is a book to buy, which was really exciting to see. That's very um, exciting. Yeah, it, yeah, it's my first book, so it's been, um, yeah, pretty exciting. <laughs> now, um, obviously your, your book is about stuff um, and its impact on us. Have you always been someone who's mindful of stuff and how it's overtaking our lives or was there a time previously where you weren't you weren't aware of it at all and you kind of came to a realization yeah um no i've not been one of those people i just um i think i'm just an average per- i mean obviously we, none of us want to think we're average but you know i i um you know, at times I've had fetishes for trainers. You know, I had lots of trainers. I had lots of records uh, at one point. I, I, actually, if anything, I would say, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I would never say I was crazy materialistic. But at the same time, at the weekend, I would look forward to going shopping. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I would, say, I would never say I was, I loved shopping, but I would, you know, I'd buy lots of pairs of, you know, there was a time I was into um, loafers, which is an amazing thing to admit now. I feel like a fool. But, you know, and I would go out and I'd buy more and more pairs of loafers. Um, and, you know, once, once, I, <laughs> once I started um, investigating this book that I ended up writing, the more I did it, the more I started looking at the things that I had and thinking, I mean, I think a lot of people go through this process and um, looking at the clothes I had and think, why did I buy that? Yeah. And, you know, I just, why have I got this thing that that I, you know, I, I thought I would build up a collection of these books or the, these things that, that I just don't wear or don't use and don't need and why did I bother? And it just seems, it seems really weird. It's almost that, you know, you, you take the um, the veil away from your eyes and think, it just, yeah, it, it changes your perspective. So I wouldn't say I was, I was not, I've not always been someone who's been very mindful of how much stuff I have, no. Okay. And was there like a moment or a catalyst or an article or something that you, you came across or some kind of, uh, you know, turning point that caused you to be interested in writing the book and, and to start, you know, researching it? Or was that, um, you know, driven by a different kind of decision? I think it was gradual. I, I sometimes I've, I've, I've been asked that kind of question before, and some uh, there was um, there was a, a note that my uh, grandfather gave me on the day that he died, uh, and, and he wasn't in the habit of giving me notes, so it was quite a surreal thing. And then it, is, it ended with good luck, but just before that, he said, uh, "Memories live longer than dreams," which is quite a deep mm. <laughs> thing to say, and. Um, I mean, he wasn't the kind of person that said things like that. You know, it was, it was quite everything about that note is very surreal. Um, I can only vaguely imagine that he may have known that he was going to die in some way that day, except for it, it was a quite a random occurrence that that, uh, that he did die. Um, and I think that set me thinking about what mattered in life because that day I'd been talking big about. I had a job in advertising at the time. And I was I had a new flat in South London. It was a big flat, and it was, you know, and I think I was talking big about what I was going to do with my life and where I was going to go. And I think he almost just wanted to sort of put my back, not back in my place, but just kind of say, look, you know, bear in mind what matters in life. But I think I only can see that on reflection and it was just the work that I did since 2004 I've been 
a part of my business and increasingly my business has been in the world of cultural analysis and trend forecasting. So for, for publications from The Economist and New York Times to The Sunday Times and to clients from um, Absolute to BMW to um, – let me think of someone at the other end of the spectrum, Zurich Financial um, um, Companies, Zurich Insurance Group. Um, I've been helping companies understand the future, understand the way that our culture is changing. And as part of that work, it became clear to me that there is significant problems in our culture. There's problems that really are coming from materialism as the value system which underpins capitalism. And been thinking, and I would say probably from about particularly 07, 08, and the, you know, the financial crash, thinking, okay, what does this mean for the world? What's going on? How can we fix it? So I think it was a gradual thing. I then uh, wrote something for the Times, uh, the Times of London, and I was asked to write a column on, um, I think it was the future of hospitality, and I ended up writing this thing about this this word experientialism i coined it for this piece and the the editor just threw it back to me this was a uh, a freelance piece i was doing and said look this is what wasn't what i asked for give me the piece i asked for which i then did and that was fine you know just um but i then sat with this kind of like wow okay hold on how does that fit together with this problem and i started to just um yeah think about it and i think that's i think that's where the book is original and why I've got something to say and that I've put together this problem of materialism with this idea of experientialism in a way that no one else has done. I think lots of people have identified, I mean, you'd have to be nuts not to realize there are some significant problems with capitalism, some significant problems with our system as it stands today. And lots of people have been punting their ideas about how we solve this problem and what we do next. And, um, I think what I've done that's different is I've identified this particular answer. Yeah, I agree. Actually, um, I mean, often there are there are a huge number of books and products and things out there talking about the same problems. You know, the fact that we're building <laughs> we're building a house of cards um, in terms of the economy and you know the ongoing issues <laughs> that underpin capitalism. But what I love about what you're doing is you're offering a solution that um, that people can can see. I mean, look, people are inherently self, you know, self-involved and not only do people see the issue and they see the problem and they want that problem to be solved, but they, uh, you know, they don't want to necessarily be made to feel horribly bad about it either. Mm-hmm. And what I love yeah. about what you're doing is providing this, this suggestion that experiences are greater than things and people can get behind that, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's fantastic, and it's opening up the conversation in a different kind of way, um, which is really, really valuable. Thank you, and I agree with you. I think one of the reasons why I ended up getting excited about it was that most of the solutions make you sort of just—it's it's, more—it's more stick than carrot. It's like you're a bad person, you're a consumer, you buy all this stuff. This is what you do. You, you're just wrong in some way. And the problem with solutions, and minimalism is a great example of that. For, in my view, is that it starts from this place that says the system is bad, the system is wrong, have less stuff. Now, ultimately, if you talk to minimalists, of course, and if you look at most minimalist creeds, it's really about getting away from materialism and you know the maximal creed of more, 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 so that you've got room for other things. 
but it seems to me that what where experientialism works as an idea and this idea of you know experiences being great is it's positive it's aspirational it's fun you know the thought of um that you know that there's a problem with our system and we're bad people means that you don't really want to play that game whereas so, if someone says to you hey i've got a great idea instead of spending all your money on stuff which makes you feel guilty makes you feel bad about the environment and doesn't make you any happier why don't you go spend your money and your time on experiences instead? That's exciting and fun, and it solves a problem both personally for you in terms of you know happiness, anxiety, stress, and depression. You're going to be further away from those bad things and further towards the good stuff of happiness. But at the same time, it's better for the planet and it's better for our society as well. So it's it's um, it's win win for everybody. You know, it is. It <laughs> is, and I think that's one of the the things that I come up against a lot. You know, when people hear me talk about simplifying or, you know, having less stuff and they they ask if that means minimalism. I'm like, well, you can call it that if you want, but what it's really about is tapping into what's important and, you know, going and living in accordance with that. And the things that are important turn out to not really be things at all. Um, mm. And I think that's definitely like an image problem that, that minimalism can have. Uh, and as you say, you talk to people who who prescribe to you know minimalism, and it's it's not a dissimilar thing to what you're talking about. But I just think that the solutions that you're presenting are they're positive and they're yeah they're fun and they're something that people can get behind and feel good about. Oh, it's really interesting what you say about the similarities because do you know Joshua Becker Brook? I do. Yeah, the- he's been on the show before. Oh, fantastic! You know he's got a new book coming out. Yes. Okay, just because um, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's a great book and it really. Um, I don't know, it flips something in me as well. I really, I really like it. It's a really, it's a, it's a good book. It, it really inspired me to get rid of more of my stuff, <laughs> which is a really good thing. Um, at the same time, I, and I think he's doing a very good job actually in, in, in this new book of re, read, redefine, I think redefining minimalism to make it more popular. But there's this, if you come across the phrase uh, crossing the chasm, so it's a, product thing but it's also it's a the idea that there's a real jump between the innovators and early adopters and the majority and i think that one of the fundamental problems with minimalism unless somebody really gets hold of it and read well i think that's what joshua was trying to do but is that it's stuck with this term it's stuck Mm. with the term of minimalism and that just isn't very exciting. There's some kind of suggestion. This is this is my my view of it. Obviously, it it just feels a bit negative. And um, if you look at the numbers, obviously I'm a cultural analyst as well. You know, this is not just manifest of what I think people should do. It's but it's my observation of what I think is happening, what I think is going to happen. Um, I think for I think there's a real challenge for minimalism to cross the chasm from the risk friendly. Uh, innovators and early adopter types and to cross that chasm to the the majority of people. I think there are a lot of people out there who will hear the term and it doesn't appeal to them. It's going to be hard for them to embrace that kind of idea. I think almost because the way it's – you know, I got caught in this conversation earlier today actually with somebody about – the thing about experientialism, you can picture what it is. Whereas with minimalism, the starting point is what it isn't. <laughs> so it's a bit like you know giving up smoking or giving up chocolate or giving up cake or giving up sugar. You know, sugar is this, this terrible thing. Um, 
if you focus on the sugar, if you focus on the chocolate, if you focus on the cigarettes and you focus on the thing you're trying to give up, it's going to make giving up that much harder. You know that uh, phrase, the thing that you resist is the thing that persists or some sort of phrase like that, right? The thing you focus on, if you, and if you look at behavioral psychology, you know, like Dan, from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and all the work he's been doing, um, the most important uh, heuristic, the way that we make decisions, is the availability heuristic. The availability heuristic kills all others. So if you spend all your day thinking, I mustn't drink coffee, I mustn't eat sugar, I mustn't have cake, I mustn't eat chocolate, that's the thing that's going to be in your mind. Absolutely. And so therefore, you're going, to, you're going to go have coffee or chocolate or smoke a cigarette or that thing. And so if you focus on minimalism and you focus on not having stuff, that's where your focus is. And the magic of experientialism is it's forget the stuff, which is what a lot of minimalists say anyway. It's not about the stuff. It's about what matters in life. And the magic of experientialism is, is it focuses square on on what you should go for, the experiences. Spend your time, spend your focus, spend your money on doing something. And it's also woolly enough, a bit like freedom, that you can kind of make it mean what you want it to mean whilst it also having its core meaning. Do you, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I agree with you completely. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that's absolutely been my experience. You know, people will push back when they hear me talk about like simplifying because they, they kind of, put it in the same basket as minimalism, which is fair enough. Um, and, uh, <laughs> they start thinking about what they have to do without. Whereas the way hmm. I see it is it's actually what you gain, you know, you gain time and you gain, um, you know, energy and you gain space, but you also gain, um, you know, freedom from having to buy these things that we continue to buy and we travel more as a result and we have more time together as a family. We go for adventures and bushwalks and that kind of stuff. And, for me, it's always been a focus on what you gain, but I can really understand why people approach it from this kind of scarcity mindset, which is ironic anyway. But um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I agree with you. Can we just play with that idea? Because that is interesting because a lot of people will have that feeling. You know, it's the, you know, Barry Schwartz's book, The Paradox of Choice. Yes. Uh, and Bar- Barry was brilliant. I, you know, I've talked to him a, a number of times about this and it, it's, um, you know, if you think about the way that somebody buys a phone or makes decisions when they're choosing what to learn at school, it's always about keeping your options open. And, and the, the, you know, this comes from the economists. And, you know, the fundamental way that our system is set up and driven by the success of economists and, the, and um, economics in the 20th century. And you see, the thing for um, Economists, they, they start from a, you know, sorry, I don't know if this is really obvious and everybody knows this, but it's it, the practice of economics comes from a scarcity mindset. The definition of economics was was from some guy in the 20s. I'm trying to think what his name is. He's got some name like Lyon or something. He was involved at the LSC, the London School of Economics, which was only founded about 1904, 1905. The, the study of economics at universities only um, happened at the late 19th and early 20th, early 20th century properly as its own subject. And what the economists do, the way that they work things out, especially the the closest proxy they have for happiness is um, preference satisfaction. Okay, so the idea is that the more preferences that you can satisfy, the not quite happier you are, but the more successful a system is. So for them, for the economists, the more options you have, the more preferences you can satisfy, the happier or the closest they can get to it you will be. Um, so therefore, the idea of 
less choice feels like it's not heading in the right direction. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. So I wonder if there's a way of of, of re, <laughs> rebranding simplification. Because do you, have you come across that woman who does the five R's? The Is it the Zero Waste Home? B, um, B somebody. Johnson, yeah. B Johnson, yeah. I was on a um, Radio 4 programme with her recently and she's I think she's brilliant. One of the things that, you know, that she, she talks about, exactly as you said there, is that their life of less waste, it doesn't mean they don't have stuff. They've all got smartphones. They have really amazing holidays. She really believes in that. I wonder if it, it should be called, um, I don't know, you know, holidayism or something like this, where it's like, you know, we, we don't waste our, our time and our money buying stuff. We have less of that so we can have more of the other. Do you see what I mean? Because we all believe in the idea of progress. You know, it's a, since the Enlightenment, we believe that, you know, let's not say it's, we're, we're done here. I gave a talk, I mean, sorry if I'm just going on, but I, I gave a talk recently to, um, it was like a health and well-being day to a group of about, about 25, 30 women. And, and I, I wanted them to play this game that I like people to play. I, I call it the, um, what do I call it now? I, call it the, I like to call it the Brewster's Millions game. Uh, or uh, named after the movie, which you're probably too young to remember. But basically, you have to spend a month not buying any stuff. You just spend your money on experiences. Spend all the money you would usually spend on stuff, spend it on experiences. And there was one woman who put her hand up, a girl called Katie, and she said, um, look, I'm really busy at the moment. I'm working, I think she was saying she was working like 16, 17-hour days. She was working really hard. She's got a business that's doing very well. And she said, look, I don't have time to have these experiences. So when I want to stop and treat myself, I want to buy something. And you can imagine my reaction. I kind of had this, you know, awful look on my face. (laughs) You're mad. I mean, this isn't going to treat yourself. But her point was she needed something, some kind of almost let off, you know. And I, I tried to explain to her that, I mean, for a start, we need to redefine what treating is. Because what she would do by buying some more stuff is she would create a problem where she needs to earn money to buy that stuff. So she would be setting herself up into a vicious cycle of needing to earn money to buy something she doesn't really need that isn't going to bring her any happiness. She'd be much better off saving that until she has got some time. Um, anyway, I'm just wondering here. I just, I just don't know. I just, it, it, the idea of having less needs to be given a positive spin. I think the best term that I've come across for it is experientialism. So um, I guess what I'm saying to you, Brooke, is I think you should use that term. <laughs> I think no, and I think it's it's the people that I see talking about experientialism are people who wouldn't talk about minimalism. Um, right. I mean, there's definitely people who who cover both, and you know, because yeah. they're all in on this concept of less stuff, more life. But yeah. um, a lot of people, like on the periphery of that group, maybe people who are on the other side of the chasm, as you say, uh, are, are talking about it because they're excited by it. You know, a lot of people, well, almost everyone loves the idea of doing fun things. Not everyone loves to yeah. travel, yeah. but a lot of people do. And other people like to do fun things at home, you know, um, or even just the, to have the opportunity to have a quiet weekend or have some quiet time or spend quality time with friends or go to the pub or, you know, those things that we, we, we they sometimes get shoved to the side because we're too busy working or we're too busy shopping or buying money or um, spending money or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think that it's a much, it's got much broader appeal 
Um, and I think I might start using it. So thank you. <laughs> ah, well, thanks. Uh, just, just the thought, Brooke. Um, sorry to spin this round, but w- why do you think some people go for this term of minimalism and some people go for this term of experientialism? I've got my own thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear what you think. And, and, and my, I guess my follow-up comment, question to that would be, how do we get the minimalists to embrace this idea of experientialism to spread the message more? But let's start with... Uh, what, do you, what do you think? Why do you think some people go for minimalism, not experientialism, even though the two are quite similar in concept? Um, it's a really good question because once you dig in a little, they are very, very similar. But I think, I mean, I think there are people who are more drawn to a, a physical environment of less stuff. Uh, and once they, they recognize that, once they recognize that the clutter is is stopping them from living life the way they want to, they're all in on the idea of getting rid of the stuff. And sometimes the the benefits beyond, you know, the physical clutter-free environment take more time to become apparent. That was my, that was sort of my journey. I was diagnosed with postnatal depression after our, um, right. our second child was born. It was pretty severe and I was in a, like a really bad place. But part of my my journey, for want of a better word, um, was to try and simplify my life. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. So I started by decluttering after reading um, a couple of blogs and habits being one of them. Um, and I started decluttering our house. And it took me a good two years to work oh. through our house. And again, we weren't hoarders. You know, we just had the crap that comes with being, you know, <laughs> yeah. modern people. We had a two-car garage full of boxes of stuff yeah. that I didn't know what was in them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that took that took time, but it was only after that first couple of years that I could see the additional benefits, really, of of simplifying and, I guess, embracing minimalism to a certain point. And that's when, for me, it became apparent that there was so much more to gain than just having an empty shelf. It was more about uh, the life that we could then have as a result. So I think some people jump into minimalism because it speaks to what they want to control maybe in their like their physical environment whereas other people either aren't aware of the fact that it's a problem or it's just not a problem for them and they they want it's that mentality of treating themselves and the experience side of it fits as well you know particularly for people who have concerns about the environment and you know how excess consumerism is impacting the environment which is pretty obvious i mean i think you'd have to be living in a cave to not recognize that but or a politician yeah. who keeps on signing off on coal and stuff like that right oh man like, and that's that's another question that i want to dig into you with you hey i, I want to just play with what that idea because i think that's really interesting so some people they start with the the problem of um and i'm sorry to hear about you know what you went through but it sounds like you come through the other side so that's great you know that's um so some people start with the problem and they're kind of like, how do I control this? And they start with uh, dealing with the stuff. And from that, their journey becomes too much stuff as, as a, I don't know, as a, let's say that's a proxy but that for the problem. The problem is this. Deal with that, get in control of life and then have an opportunity to breathe and see, okay, now I've got this stuff out of the way. Oh, what matters? Oh, okay, it's more about experiences. So there's kind of like the journey is problem problem seems to be the stuff in some way a bit like um i'm trying to think of the name of the woman in my book now uh, <laughs> the one who, who goes on the journey of voluntary simplicity uh amy uh m-a m-a it's amy but a-m-a-i-m-e-a-q-e uh m-a um amazing i couldn't remember her name huh uh, <laughs> 
And um, so getting rid of, getting on top of the stuff and getting on top of the stuff means getting rid of a whole bunch of it. So step one is problem, solution is minimalism, and then like, ah, free, what can I do now? And then to let's call it experientialism. Whereas for other people, they don't have the problem with stuff in the first place, but they might have some kind of, I don't know, they just like, they're just moving generally. They move to the experiences and maybe having less stuff comes along as part of that journey. Yeah. I'm making it up now. I'm just trying to play with that just to see how it works for different people. No, I mean, I've, t- I've taught a few workshops over the past 12 months and I've definitely yeah. seen people coming at it from both sides. Um, so people who have a similar kind of trajectory to me and then people yeah. who come at it from either, you know, kind of adopting like a more mindful way of living and, and how they're spending their time, which is, you know, essentially tapping into that idea of experientialism as well. Um, and it's it's really interesting because I find that people who, who get all in on this idea, no matter what side or what part they come from, they end up pretty much at the same place, which is a lot less stuff and a lot more life a lot more experience you know a lot more a lot more living um and i find that really interesting because again i think people get caught up in the process like the right way to do it the right way to do these these kind of lifestyle changes and i don't think that that necessarily exists i think you get in and you you know you start making the changes that you need to make or that that feel the most important to you and um yeah it's it's really it's fascinating to watch people kind of expand that reach throughout the way they're living i think it's a re- i really like the way you put that that you know there are different ways to do it there's different journeys with different people and it's made me think of the idea that um you know the two reasons that we change are des- desperation and enlightenment mm-hmm. and to an extent maybe i'm oversimplifying but i'm always trying to model these things and trying to analyze them with that you know it's my it's my business right um you know, desperation tends to be minimalism. Desperation, here's my problem. You know, the, the realization there is a problem, I need to do something about it. So minimalism is the first step and then on to experientialism, you know, and, and, and the stuff comes first. Whereas for some enlightenment suddenly realizes, hey, all this stuff isn't making me any happier. I need to, uh, um, you know, move, move away from buying stuff and do experiences instead. But actually, as I'm saying that, if you think about the minimalists, you know, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, uh, who, who are at the beginning of, um, of Stuffocation, they have that blog, The Minimalists. Mm-hmm. Of course, they did, imp- I mean, they've totally, imp- I mean, by definition, they've embraced minimalism, even if they define it in similar terms to what I would call experientialism. Um, so that's the, ignore that analysis, I'm completely wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying it out here. You know, we'll see. <laughs> we're, we're, we're feeling stuff out. It's fine. It's good. I like it. Yeah. Uh, um, so, it's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I mean, you, you adopted this idea of experientialism and as a result, did you then just start removing stuff from your life, like physical items from your life and your house? Was that part of the process for you? No. Not at first, actually, because uh, – so the book is two things. It's a forecast and a manifesto. And when I first put it together, there was no manifesto in there. I find in life – I don't like people that tell me how I should live and what I should do. Mm-hmm. I find them annoying. And I've now become one of those annoying people. But genuinely, you know, I don't need someone to tell me how to live. What I, but what, and, and what I was looking to do was to – practice my skills as a cultural analyst and a trend forecaster and say hey there's this problem with the planet there's with the planet because of because of ca- the, the incredible 
you know, um, fuck off success of, um, sorry, is that all right to swear? <laughs> sorry, this amazing success of capitalism has, you know, lucky us that our problem is too much stuff. Lucky us that we don't need to worry about there being food on the table to eat tomorrow. Um, and, you know, for 99% of people, for 99% of human existence, biggest problem has been, you know, finding enough food to feed the family. Lucky us, we don't need to worry about that. So, you know, capitalism's great, but there's this problem. So how, how are we going to fix it? And the, the skills I've been using for these companies, I decided to use on culture and work out where I thought it was going to be going. So when I first approached this, it was very much a question of use those skills, look at what the innovators and the early adopters are doing, understand... Um, you know, the political, economic, socio-cultural, technological, aesthetic, demographic and other, you know, major trends that are affecting our society and understand what the future holds. And I looked at the signs and I believe that we are shifting from materialism to this idea called experientialism. And then sorry, I hope you don't mind me giving you a long version. Um, and And then I came across some research that made me think well, hold on, I better share this. And that was the research in the book that shows that, or no, shows is too strong, um, suggests that too much stuff could be bad for you, bad for your health. And the, and the overwhelming evidence that really I think proves is a reasonable word to say here that experiences are better than material goods at making us happy. And once I saw that, I thought, well, I better share this information. And it did start to change my life. Um, and also, to, I mean, talking to some of the world's great, you know, declutterers and downshifters and cross shifters, I was like, wow, this is making these people happy. Maybe I can try it too. And so I did it a little bit as, as little experiments, really. You know, I kind of went through different parts of my life, putting things into bags and thinking, just put it away, see if I don't need it or not. But I wanted to do it in a gentle way. You know, it's one of the things when I, you know, people say say to me, how should I do it? You know, some people say literally just throw things away. And I like the maybe pile. You know, when we do it, we have a keep, throw, maybe. And the maybe pile is always the biggest one because, (laughs) you know, it's the pile I look at and think, well, I haven't used it for a bit, but will I? And the magic of the maybe part is it makes it easier to get rid of stuff because you can, getting rid of something feels hard if you're used to holding on to things. Um, you know, if you come from a place of um, scarcity and most of us come from a time when we didn't have so much stuff. I say that I'm, I was born in the 70s. Um, so we, we look after our stuff and we hold on to our stuff. And so maybe feels a bit more relaxing because you can always go back and get it. But then again, you look again a month later and, 70% of that stuff, you think, ah, oh, mm-hmm. I just missed that. That can go. Uh, but it's easier. It's a more gentle way of doing it. It is. Um, and that's something that I've, I talk to people about a lot too, because it, it, it just takes time, particularly if you're really, you're struggling through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes time for stuff to transition from, you know, maybe I might need it to clutter. And sometimes that, that time is just time that you stick it in a box and you forget about it for a month or two and you go back and, and, and then it becomes apparent, well, this is not important. This is not, this is not something I've needed, first of all. Um, and it's also not something that I feel like I need to keep anymore. I think um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm big on slow, obviously. But. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued that you say it because I read uh, that Marie Kondo book, which mm-hmm. I imagine at some point and I, I, I had to read it I was because I was on this Radio 4 show and they wanted me to have read it so I read it in about I mean it's amazing I don't know if you've read it but it's really easy to read it took me 45 minutes to spin through it 
And she has this real thing that you should do it right once and, and be really extreme when it's done. And obviously, I mean, the woman is, is you know, she sold uh, more copies of her book than I've sold of mine. Um, I mean, it's a much, very different book. It's much simpler. You know, it's about getting rid of stuff. Um, and I'm fascinated by that as an idea because it seems to really help people. But even for myself and for my family, I just wouldn't want to do it in a weekend or do it really suddenly. I, I like that process because it helps me change as a person. So I'm intrigued that you say that as well. But I guess yeah. that comes with thing, right? No, I, I'm, I'm with you on the Marie Kondo book. And um, I've, got, <laughs> I've had a bit of pushback because it's not my favorite way of doing things, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it's not about me. It's about what works yeah. for people. And her approach works for a lot of people. Like I speak yeah. to a lot of people who have followed her book and her suggestions and have been successful, which is okay. awesome. You know, it's it, but for me, it's uh, it's more about the process. Like I've, I, I wouldn't change those two years it took me to declutter my house because I learnt so much. Whereas mm-hmm. I, I feel like if I had have tried to do that in a month, for example, first of all, I probably would have lost my mind. And second of all, I don't think I would have learnt as much about the reason why I was keeping stuff and what it was, what kind of need it was feeling in me and, you know, why I had it in the first place. I just don't think I would have had the time to process all of that. Uh, if I had yeah. tried to do it in such a short period of time. But, you know, ultimately it's whatever works for, for individual people, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I, 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 I'm with you on the – I like – the iterative process makes sense to me. If i just thrown away all my um, – you know, I, I studied classics as my first degree and um, it, it took me a while to realise I wasn't going to read Sophocles in the original Greek. Again, <laughs> you know, I I vaguely enjoyed that. No, I did. Enjoy, it was brilliant. It's a, you know, it's fantastic. But I'm just, I'm kind of done with reading, um, you know, two and a half thousand year old Greek words. <laughs> I feel like I feel, I feel like once is enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it, but I'm just, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's just time. It's time and and, and distance. Sometimes I think that that makes all the difference in those kinds of decisions. Um, so go back a few years, you know, before you had done this research, before you'd started to make these changes, um, how is life different for you now? I mean, is it on the whole, a more positive life? Are you, are you, do you feel happier? Do you have, I mean, you have less stuff. Oh, I'm really lucky because I've been in that, in that process. I've had two kids. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I have far less stuff actually. Our house, we live in a, a, a fairly small house in, in London and um, it's meant our house has become just much more pleasant to be in. <laughs> That's the first thing. And we have we have two young children. You know, my little girl is four and a half. My little boy is about to turn two. And kids, as you know, <laughs> come with a lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> and my um, my lovely mum uh, and my stepmother and my dad and my stepdad and my in-laws they like to buy stuff for their grandkids and we have to try and talk them out of some of that stuff but some of that stuff comes in the house but it, it, it's meant that we got rid of some of the bigger pictures that we had we got rid of um, a coffee table that was nice and you know it was this designer coffee table but it just took up a lot of space we didn't need it um, books we got rid of loads of books and getting rid of books is tough has been very tough for me at first you know it takes me back to that 
I remember studying modern history, you know, the Nazis burning the books on kind of crystal knacked or whenever it was, you know, I had this kind of thing in my head. And I was obviously as a writer and someone who's read quite a lot of books in his life, getting rid of books felt like sacrilege. But I realized that there are books that I've got that I'm never going to read again. Get rid of those books. There's books that I've got that I'm never going to get round to read. Those can go as well. I have a very small section now of books that I haven't read. And if I read a new book and it isn't one of those, one of those has to go. Because if I'm not going to read it now, you know, there's that, you know, those books that you have that you think I'm going to read that. And then when it comes to the next time, you know, you're starting a new book, you look and you think, no, no, not now. I read it another time. (laughs) That means you're not, I mean, what are you doing? Keeping that book, get rid of the book, you know, and I've started doing that. So that's just, it's just very relaxing that the books are on my shelf. Obviously, I'm a writer. I'm a nonfiction writer, so I do keep some books that I go back to, and I've got notes all through them. And there are books. Did a lot of research for this book, so I keep those books because they're they're my workbooks. But the books on my shelf now, ones that I've got, a, you know, I've got a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, but I used to have three copies of <laughs> To Kill a Mockingbird, and that was ridiculous. Um, but even with the pictures on our wall, we have smaller pictures on our wall, and it just gives a sense of space. And, um, yeah, we have a, um, we have a really crappy car, but it works. And I know that, um, if, uh, I've got some pieces of work that are coming in at the moment and I know that part of me thinks, oh, you know, we could maybe buy a new car, but I know that the money won't go on buying a new car. We'll spend it on holiday. I mean, why would I, what's the point? You know, I'm going to get, what's the point getting a new car when I could take my family away? And yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What's the point? You know, yeah. it's um, yeah. That's that's a really good question to ask when you're faced with that kind of choice. I think. Do you think um, that just society in general? Do you think that we've reached peak stuff, or are we seeing a shift back towards experiences over stuff, or is that just me? You know, with a confirmation bias because of the the people I speak to. Hell yeah, we've reached peak stuff. Uh, there was a document published by Guy. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. He runs some. Uh, he's a he's a, a analyst. It was published back in 2011. It's one of the things that made me really believe this was happening. That, that was, he's got, I mean, robust data that shows that as well as our attitude, our behaviour is changing. We are consuming less stuff. And there's there's lots of bits of data. There's um, I don't want to plug my website, but I, I run a small uh, think tank called The Future Is Here, and on there I've published a couple of pieces. Can I mention the website? Sorry, I don't want to. No, 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 please. I mean, it's it's thefish.co, so it's thefish, T-H-E-F-I-S-H dot C-O. And there's a couple of pieces on there, which is based on data from Bloomberg looking at shares, uh, the U.S. government, the U.K. government, the EU. Sorry, I don't know if there's any... Aussie data specifically, but this is um, published in the last month that shows there is a fundamental shift from experiences to stuff. And it's obviously exciting for me to come across this because it means that when I forecast this a couple of years ago, I was right. I can say that. You know, know, this is one of the things when I wrote this book, all my friends thought I was just ridiculous. Said, oh, look, James, you know, it's not changing. You're wrong. And obviously the easy answer to that is, well, of course, things do change. We became materialistic consumers in the 20th century, so why won't we change in the 21st century? It makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it's more likely that things will change than they won't change. The question is, how are they going mm. to change? And um, there is robust data 
that illustrates that we are passing the point of peak stuff. So, um, you know, lucky us in the first world, rich countries. The other countries aren't doing it yet, but they're getting there. Yeah, okay. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other other side of the, the issue too, isn't it? I mean, because it's, <laughs> I find it, it kind of an interesting place to be at where in more developed nations, we're now talking about too much stuff and, you know, we're, we're getting rid of it. We're going to tend towards experiences. Whereas people in developing nations, particularly those that are growing and people are building wealth where they, they never had it before, now they're looking at the way that the Western world has lived for the last 50 years, thinking this is this is it, this is what we want, and we're kind of crapping on that idea already. And it's I find it a really <laughs> interesting kind of problem, um, and I, I don't know how to process it, I don't know how to, what to do with it, but it's... Um, don't yeah. worry about it. I love your Aussie phrase that we're crapping on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing it down. Yeah, you know, I really like that. It's great. Um, look, don't worry about that. And chapter nine in the book is called What About the Chinese? Uh, and it addresses exactly this issue. And I wrestled mm. with this for a bit, but not for very long. It took 150, 160 odd years for our industrial revolution or industrial revolutions, but we just call it industrial revolution. We tend to nowadays uh, to happen. And um, it took you know, best part of a hundred years of consumer revolution to get to this point. Uh, the Chinese industrial revolution has taken taken place in less than a third of the time. Their consumer revolution has taken place incredibly quickly, and they are reaching stuffocation in some ways. It's obviously different over there, but just as our revolutions have taken place quick, more quickly, and all the um, you know, the problems that come with suffocation, there are a number of problems, but the key drivers of this are the happiness deficit, you know, mm. the stress, the anxiety, the, the depression that has come with materialistic consumerism and the problem with the environment. Those problems are becoming manifest in the new emerging countries where consumerism is taking off already. So it took a while for anyone to realize there was a real problem with the environment. In our, in you know, in the lucky, in, in us, where um, in terms of you know, after our consumer revolution had happened, and it's happening much quicker over there. So it's my, my take on it is, of course, it will happen differently. But the problems of suffocation are coming to those places as well. In fact, I'm giving a um, one of those um, TED talks, a TEDx talk at LSE, um, London School of Economics, in uh, a month or so's time. Is a Indian guy who came across my book, and he was telling me about how suffocation feels very relevant there, not for all 1.3 billion people in India. I mean, there are some people who clearly do not have too much stuff. Uh, but it's really interesting for me to hear that this resonates with some people over there already. And I guess that's uh, one of the benefits of the internet as well. You know, people are much more connected. So these ideas that may have spread a lot more slowly in previous generations have the opportunity to travel, you know, across borders immediately. Um, so that that could well be a part of the reason why, as you say, the revolutions are happening much quicker as well. That's my hope. You know, the law of accelerating returns, Ray Kurzweil's idea, things happen much more quickly. You know, think how long it took color tv to take off compared to the smartphone mm -hmm. um do you ever feel kind of overwhelmed by the, the issue i mean this is this is a more of a i guess a pessimistic question which i i find myself 
dipping into this feeling of feeling just overwhelmed and sad about the whole situation sometimes. Do you feel that or do you just have a continuous stream of hope about how we, where we're going? Worried about what situation do you mean? About vacation um, as, the, as the problem or as, as, of what? No, look, I mean, it, it, typically it only ever bothers me if I find myself in a shopping centre and, you know, I'm just – I, I get physically overwhelmed by stuff. Brooke, what the hell are you doing in a shopping centre? I'm going to the bank, to be fair. <laughs> Why are you going to a bank? <laughs> to save money for our holiday. But surely you do it um, digitally, don't you? By I phone do. Or... No, I was, cash- I was cashing a cheque. Um, <laughs> which... Who gives you cheques? Uh, Am- cheque? Amazon give me cheques. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, horrible. It, re- it uh, is okay. in lots of different so the first ways. Thing, okay, so, I mean, the first thing to do is do what you have to do and get out of the shopping centre. Yeah, as quick as possible. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I, I think that um, because humans find problems and find solutions, that, mm. that's what we do. Um, so it doesn't worry me at all. You know, we, we came up to this problem of, uh, overproduction. And I say we, the Americans came up against it first because the magic of the machines of the industrial revolution were producing too much. And that one is one of the reasons that led to the 1929 crash. Um, but there was this problem of overproduction. The people then were very clever, I think. And they switched that way of thinking to think of it as underconsumption. Mm. They took the frugal, careful, thrifty people of America and they turned them into wasteful, profligate, throwaway, conspicuous consumers. Now, we all hate the idea of throwaway culture. Now, it sounds awful, but it was an awesome idea. You know, it's the idea that turned scarcity for the masses into abundance for the masses. Lucky us that those clever people did that. Of course, we've got the happiness deficit, but life expectancy at birth the big, uh, about 1900 for, for rich Western countries was about 44, 45. Life expectancy at birth today is almost twice that. Mm. And there are people, I mean, if you come across any of that research, but it suggests that we're going to be living much longer in the future. Lucky us. Now, even if you're depressed or stressed, still, you've got a lot longer to spend. <laughs> you know, you got, you, you know if, you, if you die at 80 and you're depressed most of that time, you've still got a few bits of time you can have with friends have a nice time. Um, and that's not only because of capitalism. You know, the breakthroughs have happened for all sorts of reasons. But the truth is, if you live in a wealthier country, you've got spare money to spend on healthcare. Again, lucky us. So humans come across problems, they work out ways to solve them, and those those solutions then lead to new problems and they then solve those again. And I think that's what we'll do. You know, sometimes people say to me, look, this is great, James. You, you, you really think that if someone just decides that they're not going to spend money on getting a new car, they're going to go to South America on holiday. Do you not realize the impact of that in terms of, you know, flying there? You know, that, that footprint is appalling. And I think that misses a whole, you know, there's, there's all sorts of problems. With that. I mean, one is that, um, you know, transport is, is responsible for what is it, about 5% of carbon emissions. So, yeah, it's, it's a significant problem, but it's nothing compared to buildings. You know, one of the um, revolutions that I think will come and is coming with this move from materialism to experientialism, once you swap stuff for experiences, you don't need such a big house. Homes, buildings are a massive cause. I think they're, they're responsible, certainly in the States, for 50% or something of um, 
of, of footprint, right, mm-hmm. of our carbon footprint. So if you shift from a bigger home and thinking that what you want is a bigger home to realizing that you're going to be happier in your smaller home, and if you think about, you know, the tiny home movement, no one would have talked about a tiny home movement 20 years ago. In Australia, actually, I think Australians are worse than anyone else about having the world's biggest homes. I think they have even bigger homes than the Americans. Um, but, the, the, you know, the American home has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's the same with the Aussie home. And I think what we're going to see is that tailing off or becoming smaller. Mm. Um, and, and hold on, to come back to what I was therefore saying. So, you know, you look at the transport industry, you look at uh, air flight, what we will see over the next decades is – the footprint of air travel getting smaller and smaller and smaller because they are innovating. They're making that much better. So if you shift the way you look for happiness, identity and status from material goods to experiences, even if that creates a footprint at the moment, you'll be supporting an industry that by definition isn't predicated on stuff, isn't predicated on hauling things out the ground to make things if you think about things and you and you look at the notes that come with the the, the video the story of stuff it, i think it's if for every thing that we have that we buy as um, a consumer product that's created something like 70 um trash cans bin bags whatever of of of, of waste upstream to create that thing i mean gold is a really good example gold is fundamentally evil mm. if you're bothered about footprint jewels are not a good way to go because to get gold out of the ground is really really wasteful (laughs) sorry i'm just going off on one but so um what was i saying problem solution will solve the problem don't worry about it okay I, (laughs) i mean look i do agree with you it's i think sometimes and it's only when i i do find myself in those kind of environments that i just avoid now um that i ever feel kind of that that pit of my stomach sort of feeling and I do I do agree with you and 95% of the time I have a lot of hope so you've just filled that 5% in for me um I I mean I couldn't agree more with you about the idea of experiences I I just my husband and I are taking our kids on a holiday in about a month's time um and it's something that we just it's what we work towards, you know, it's, um, and as you've said a number of times that we're incredibly lucky to be able to work towards something like that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I just, there's just so much joy in being able to, to do that. And yeah, we don't have as much stuff, but that's, that's actually another benefit. It's not a drawback at all. Uh, so it's been really wonderful talking to you about it. Thanks Brooke. Thanks for having me. Really interesting. It really made me think of some things I hadn't thought of before. So I listen, look forward to uh, hearing the conversation. And yeah, it's really set me thinking. Thank you. Excellent. No, thank you, James. It's um. This has been another episode of the Slow Home Podcast. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe via iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Jack Rabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.